0: I would ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage this morning. Um, as I said to the kids, we're just going to be looking at, at three verses, at, uh, at Luke 23 verses 44 to, to, to uh, 46, but I'm going to continue down all the way to the end of the chapter, and, uh, and so you can, you can see the context of, of what is taking place. So, so Luke chapter 23 verses 44 to 56. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all the acquaintances, also all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph, From the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one has ever had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of our Lord. May he add its eternal blessings to for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we consider again this morning the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and specifically his death and specifically the response of God to these things. I realize that I'm speaking of things that that are familiar to us. What a remarkable thing that we should be familiar with something so glorious. But Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may this be a familiarity that leads to increased, magnified worship. Not familiarity that, that leads to a disinterestness disinterestedness in these things. I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to be profoundly affected. Open our eyes that we may see these things afresh. That we would never be disinterested in the gospel. That we would see our need for the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ every day. Open our eyes that we may see spiritually. That we may behold wonderful things from your word. We pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, this past Wednesday, Jane and Bree took the kids for a walk around Munson Pond and, and Vivian somehow got, got into a, a thorn bush and came out screaming. She had, she'd gotten a thorn in her eye. And you can imagine if you've ever experienced this, she she, she was beside herself. I know actually there's been a few of us over the last just even the last last several months that have have gotten a thorn or or something in her eye, and it hurts. Now I, full disclosure here, I'm a, I'm a wimp when it comes to pain, but I've never experienced pain as significant as when last summer I got a bougainvillea thorn in my cornea for for 48 hours. You can talk to Jane. I was I was a wimp about this. For, I didn't sleep hardly for, four, for, for two days. Just, it was agonizing. And even as an infection set in my eye. You know, I've had migraines bad enough to make me vomit. I've broken numerous bones. I've, I've had a triple pain sliding door fall across my shins. I couldn't walk for three days. But none of it compared to this. So when Vivian experiences kind of pain, there's something, okay. I, I can relate to this. And, and especially for, for a three-year-old girl. And so by the time we I, I came and got her and brought her home and and, and we we put some some drops and in, in, in her eye and and it seemed she she started to calm down so we figured okay that that she was probably okay but then the next morning she woke up with a, a blood curdling scream. If you ever heard your child scream like that, you might get a sense of, of how Jane and I were feeling when this happened. And so we we realized okay, her eye is not getting better, so we immediately, took her to the eye doctor and the optometrist put yellow dye in her eye and had a look in there and she said that she could see scratches all over Vivian's cornea, but that it would probably begin to, to feel better by the next day. She gave us a numbing drops and more ointment and, and, and sent us home. But that night when I was, I was putting the ointment in Vivian's eye and I pulled her eyelid down, I could see something black and it wasn't a small thing in, between her eyeball and her eyelid. And so with Jane's help, we, we managed to pull it out. The, the thorn was still in there. It was fully a two millimeter long thorn. looked like a rose thorn. It was still in her eye. So no wonder she was screaming. And, and I, but I was, I, I, when, when, she'd, when she'd come in that, that, that morning, I was trying to calm her down. I said, Vivian, if, if daddy could, he would, he would happily take that pain for you. I wish I could, I could be in your place and that I could experience the pain instead of you. And so seeing my daughter in much pain, it broke my heart, obviously, but, but and I would have taken it, that pain in a heartbeat. But interestingly, later on that night, she told me that she wished I could have taken the pain as well. <laughs> but I, st- I understood in that moment just a little bit more with the heart of a father. The Father's love for us. The meaning of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the depths of the Father's love for us. I would have gladly taken that, that pain for my daughter. But as we'll see in our passage this morning, God the Father did not take the pain from his son. God the Father inflicted pain on his son. Pain infinitely greater than than merely having a thorn in your eye. The pain of becoming the the sin bearer and fully bearing the wrath of God for his people's sins, for your sins and for mine. You know, God in his word repeatedly refers to us as the apple of his eye. We are the apple of his eye, but the reason we are the apple of God's eye is because God the Father crushed his son to death for you and I. That's the only way that you and I could possibly be sinful, though we be the apple of God's eye. God poured out his, the wrath that you deserve on his son in your place. Jesus Christ suffered and died in your place, and you are credited with his perfect obedience. That's the gospel. And you need to see the cross of Christ with healthy spiritual eyes. If if you want to see and to understand the cross, you need to go to scripture. You know, I hear so often, I hear people say, well, well, my God wouldn't do that, or or my God isn't like that. And, And what they're saying is actually the direct opposite of what God says he is like in his word. If your God is different in his attributes to from the God of the Bible, then your God is not the God of the Bible. The Bible has been pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ all the way back since Genesis 3:15. When God cursed the serpent, saying that that the the seed of the woman would be at enmity with the serpent, and that that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head and that he would have his heel bruised, that the the, the son would have his heel bruised in the process. That's that's the the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. And our studies throughout Luke's gospel account, we've we've seen how Luke has been, been pointing through all the way throughout to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It all points to this moment. Luke has included several direct prophecies, very remarkably specific prophecies of what was going to happen in this moment. Luke, I encourage you to, to look these up in, in your own time again. Luke 2: 34 and 35 and, and 9, uh, 22 and 44, 17, 25, 18, 32 and 33, if, if you I know I'm going fast here, but but um, you, can, you can review this um, at home. Um, by looking at the video again if you want, but, but uh, 29 to 19, just to name a few. But as we're going to see this morning, that as we saw last week, that Luke does not go into much detail describing the crucifixion of Jesus. He simply says in, in verse 33, as we saw last week, they crucified him. And the same is true with the death of Jesus. See, he, he, Luke doesn't vividly describe it. He just says in verse 46, he breathed his last. and as we've seen also since since the beginning of Luke's gospel account that 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 it is masterfully masterfully narrated even simply on a, a literary level now you would of course imagine that, that that there would be since it's inspired by the holy spirit in every word but Luke is a narrator par excellence he's he is, he is he's also the theologian par excellence. And and so Luke tells us what's happening and its meaning, not primarily through the details of the crucifixion and death of Christ, but in the words and the deeds of those who are present. We've already seen a a range of of responses to the crucifixion and death of Jesus. We've, We've We've seen the crowds watch and rulers sneer and and soldiers mock and a, a criminal blaspheming while another criminal repents. In our passage this morning, Luke shows us God's response. God's response to the death of Jesus Christ. He shows us Christ's response to his own death. And as we'll see next week, Luke shows us, or sorry, on Friday rather, Luke shows us the response of of three groups of people who are gathered around as eyewitnesses of the crucifixion and death of Christ. As the centurion praises God and confesses Christ's innocence, while the crowd mourns and the disciples watch from afar. So, So here we have three groups of people who all saw the same thing but they all had three distinct responses because they all saw these events and they all saw Jesus through different spiritual eyes. So again, this morning, we're just going to to focus on on, on verses 44 to 46, what God said and did. God the Father and God the Son. And then on Friday, Lord willing, verses 47 to 49, what the bystanders said and did. And then verses 50 to 56, what Jesus' disciples said and did. And may may God help us all to, to see these events clearly and correctly. May He help us to see these events biblically for the glory of His name. So again, this morning, just verses 44 to 46. What God said and did. Jesus has been hanging on the cross since about 9 a.m. on the morning of Good Friday. According to the the Jewish reckoning of time during the biblical age, although the, the hours of daylight depended on the time of year, the day was divided up into 12 hours and the night into four watches. And Luke tells us here in verse 44 that it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour. The sixth hour was about the sixth hour from sunrise. It was high noon when the sun was at its zenith. But this was a day like no other. For Luke continues. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. The whole land and, and the same word can actually also be the whole earth. So it, whether it's, it's all of, uh, of Judea or whether it's the whole earth was plunged into darkness until around three in the afternoon. So what's going on here? What's happening? Well, some suggest that the darkness is is merely metaphorical, that the darkness of the crucifixion represented sadness or the the darkness of men's hearts. Others suggest that there was a a coincidental or, or providential solar eclipse at that time. However, that couldn't be because the Passover takes place during a full moon and a solar eclipse only takes place during a new moon, when there's no moon. Still others suggest that it was supernatural darkness, but that it was the power of darkness on the earth. And as evidence, they, they point to the fact that Jesus said to his captors in the Garden of Gethsemane in, verses 20, in Luke twenty two fifty three. but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And so they conclude that darkness was triumphing during that time because God was absent. Well, I don't believe that's correct either. I believe there's something far more powerful and far more profound that's taking place here. I believe the darkness is God's judgment. <laughs> Repeatedly in scripture, darkness is equated with God's judgment. Think of of Genesis fifteen and the the Abrahamic covenant, where God put Abraham into a deep sleep, and then there was a, a thick darkness as the flaming torch and fire pot went in the middle between the, between the carcasses of the animals while Abraham slept. It was, it was darkness. This is a picture of what God is saying, that, that if, if he breaks the covenant, that the covenant curses, what happened to those animals will fall upon God himself. So he's saying the judgment would be upon himself. Keep that in mind. Think also of Exodus 10, where where God brought down plagues on the nation of Egypt. And if you remember, the ni- what was the ninth plague? Darkness. It was a, it was a darkness so, so, so dark that you could feel it. That was the ninth and the penultimate plague. The next plague was the, the plague of the firstborn, where all the firstborn died in Egypt, apart from those who had sacrificed the Passover lamb and, and their firstborn sons were slain, were saved rather, not slain. So it pointed to to God's judgment and it also points to eschatological judgment, to end times judgment. Repeatedly, Jesus warns of his enemies being cast into outer darkness on the day of judgment. In prophetic passages like Isaiah 24, 23 and Joel 2, 31 and Amos 8, 9 and Zephaniah 1, 15. Again, I would would encourage you to, to look these up on your own. The day of the Lord is presented as a day of darkness. I'm just going to quote one. Amos 8, 9. On that day declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So so this is, he's speaking there of end times judgment. But here again, we see the sun going down, metaphorically, at least at noon. This is, I believe, God's judgment. We're witnessing here, but this is not. This is not God's judgment on his enemies. This is God's judgment on his son. Listen to John MacArthur. The darkness was not caused by the absence of God, but rather by his presence in full judgment, vengeance, and fury infinite wrath moved by infinite righteousness released infinite punishment on the infinite son. God arrived in the blackness of Calvary that day to unleash judgment, not in an eschatological sense against the ungodly, but in a soteriological sense against his son. Do you understand what MacArthur's saying here? I think he's 100% correct that the, 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 the day of the Lord at the end of time will be a day of darkness as God judges his enemies by casting them into hell. But on this day of darkness, the day of darkness as the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, God the Father God the Father treated his son as an enemy so that we could become his friends. God the Father punished his son with all the sins that all of his people would ever commit for all eternity. All of your sins, all of my sins, were placed on Christ, on the cross, and the Father poured out his just wrath on him instead of you, instead of me. Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He he suffered that wrath of God for those three hours so that we don't have to suffer wrath for all eternity. May the truth of this wash over you afresh. May may it radically affect the way that you think, the way that you speak, and the way that you live your life. Live as one who's been purchased, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, as we prayed this morning for for the, the missionary, for for our brother. I was reminded of the fact that that was my life. I, I was also a drug addict and just like Chen Wen-Sheng and and, and the, the Lord, when the Lord pulled me out of that life, when I first experienced personally the gospel, the, 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 the new life that I had in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of all my sins, you know, many of you, you know this story, that, that I, I literally rolled in the grass with joy. I felt like, like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, when the, 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 the burden was rolled off his back and, and rolled into the tomb, never to be seen again. But why don't I still do that? That is every bit as much true of me today as it was on the day that I was first saved. I need the gospel today. You need the gospel today. Why aren't we all rolling on in the grass with joy? May God help us to see these truths with spiritual eyes afresh, just like in the day when we were first saved. In fact, even more than that, may he help us to grow in, in our knowledge and appreciation of what really transpired on the cross so that we can worship God more fully and more powerfully with, with all of our lives. So so this, this darkness that, that took place was was a sign, it was visible, it said at least throughout, throughout Ju- Jerusalem, if not over the, the and, Ju- and Judea, but, but very possibly over the whole earth. But there's another sign that, that took place at that time, and we're told also that in verse 45, that the veil of the temple was rent in two. The, the, the heavy curtain of the of the temple it was was sixty feet long and thirty feet wide and according according to the Bible and according to some sources it was four inches thick it was rent in two from top to bottom as as Matthew tells us Matthew also tells us that this was specifically at the moment of Christ's death Matthew also tells us there was a rock splitting earthquake and and the, the the tombs of the saints opened and the saints were resurrected and and were visible to many, all at the moment of Christ's death. But Luke mentions only the curtain being torn in two. Gave gives a massive curtain. But far more impressive than the physical description of the curtain was what the curtain represented spiritually. You see, the curtain that, that is being spoke of here is the, the curtain that separated the holy place in the temple from the most holy, holy place in the temple, from the, the holy of holies. The holy of holies represents the, the, represented the absolute otherness of God. The total separation of God, not just from, from everything sinful, but separation from, from everything else in all creation. It, it, God is, is so holy that, that everything else in all creation is profane. Compared to him. And so that that heavy curtain marked marked separation from God. And into that place, only one man, the high priest, and that only once a year could go in. Representing the people of Israel as he went before the Lord to make atonement for their sins, to, to turn away God's wrath for their sins. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 16. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to uh, to go with me to, back to Leviticus to consider this for a moment. Leviticus 16. So here was initially Aaron down in, in verse... 11, Aaron would present the bull as a, as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for him and, his, and himself. He would kill the bull as a sin offering. And he would take a censer, so a, a, a container to hold the coals from the altar of the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense into the Holy of Holies. Now at that point, it was a, it was a tabernacle. It, was a, it wasn't a, the full physical temple yet. It was the the made all of it was all made of uh, it was a tent that they could roll up and, and move around, but he would bring this, the the coals and the incense into the holy of holies. And when he was inside, he would offer the, the he would put the incense on top of the coals, and the the holy of holies would would fill with smoke. And the smoke represented the, the presence of God, but the smoke would also obscure the, the mercy seat, so that that. Well, first here Aaron, then the other priests couldn't see the mercy seat and be immediately struck down dead by the Lord. And then inside he would, he would also sprinkle the, the blood of, of a bull and the, and the blood of a goat on, on top of the, the mercy seat. And he would do this all for his sins and for the sins of the people. Tradition holds that, that that the high priest would, would actually have a uh, would have a, a rope tied around his ankle, a scarlet cord tied around his ankle and and bells around his, his waist, so that if, if God were to strike him dead inside, that the other priests would would hear the, the the jingle of the bells as he fell dead, and then they could drag him out. With the rope so that they wouldn't have to go in and go in and be, be struck dead for going into the Holy of Holies themselves. You can imagine that the fear and, and trepidation as the high priest every year on the Day of Atonement would, would prepare himself to go into the Holy of Holies. You, you can imagine his, his heart pounding as he he pulled back the curtain and, and entered. You can imagine what would have been going through his mind. Am I worthy? Have I really repented of my sin? Will the Lord accept my sacrifice? Will the Lord strike me dead? So you can see the magnitude here of the curtain of the temple being torn in two. This represents an an opening of the way to God. God. It also represents an, an end to the, the centrality of the temple because it and the sacro, sacrificial system and everything that was involved with it was, were merely pictures that, that represented this spiritual reality, what is taking place upon the cross. They all pointed to this moment. They all pointed to the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So, so the, the rending of the curtain reveals an end to the Levitical priesthood because Jesus Christ is our high priest. Because he is the sacrifice. The sacrificial system is also ended because we now have access, not through the blood of bulls and goats, because it's impossible for blood and bulls and goats to, to atone for our sins, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. We now have access to God. And so we can go before God with confidence not with with fear and trepidation saying am I good enough because you know you're not not saying will God accept my sacrifice because he won't not saying will he strike me dead because he already struck Christ dead in your place who is the sacrifice who was worthy and is worthy We can go with confidence even though we are not worthy. Even though repentance is not good enough. Even though we could never be good enough. We can go into the presence of the Lord with confidence because the way has been made for us through the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, listen to Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. We have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through, for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So these signs, the the, the darkness and the, the rending of the curtain, and the earthquake and the the resurrection of the saints, all served as signs. And, and the darkness and the earthquake and the and the saints were were for for were visible to all. Most notably, that the earthquake and the darkness were visible for those who had gathered around the cross. But the rending of the curtain of the holy of holies. It was only visible to a few. You can be sure that word got around. Word did get around. You can read it in your Bible. You can see it in the word of God. But you need to understand the purpose of signs. You see, signs were, were meant to, to, to be presented as, as key points in, in redemption history. Right? Obviously, the, the, the birth and the, the ministry and the death of, of Jesus Christ is such a time. But don't make the mistake of thinking that signs are normative. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because these things happen here, that they're going to happen all the time. Or that we should be looking for signs in day-to-day life. You see, these signs took place at the pivotal point of all history. And even in the biblical narrative, the the miraculous signs are commonplace, but reserved, are reserved for key moments. But be careful not to make the opposite mistake either. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you don't see signs now, that they will not happen again. God will reveal many more signs, as we've already seen, that there will be another darkness. The time of the, the judgment, of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So those types of signs are we are to, to watch for, knowing that the, the end of time will, return, will come, and possibly quickly. But there was another sign that revealed the magnitude of this event. We've seen God's response, but now we see the response of Jesus Christ, God the Son, what he did at the moment of his death, what he said at the moment of his death. First, let's consider Matthew 27, 46, something that Luke doesn't record for us. He says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, a lie, a lie sabachthani, that in aramaic means my god my god why have you forsaken me on the cross jesus christ experienced desolation he experienced separation from his heavenly father this was this was more than the wrath of god this was the agony of christ Now, I I know that you've heard this before. You've heard this many times from this pulpit and and countless other places. But but by God's grace, focus your mind and your heart again on what this really means. Remember, God the Father and God the Son are, along with the, the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the triune God. But Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, truly knew separation from God personally. Now, that's a a mystery that I cannot understand, but Scripture testifies to it. That Jesus Christ experienced abandonment from the Father so that we could be accepted in the Father through the Son. And Jesus Christ was delivered to crucifixion at the hands of wicked men according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2 23. This was not God's surprise. This was God's plan from the beginning, from before the beginning. God the Father did not force Jesus Christ to go to the cross. He, he went there out of love. Love for the Father and love for his people. You see in the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, The Father and the Son mutually agreed to redeem a people. God the Father would send the Son. The the Son would go. The Son would live. The Son would die for the sins of his people. And the Father agreed to, to resurrect him from the dead after pouring out his wrath upon him. And then to give his people to him as his bride. You and me are the bride of Christ. According to the Covenant of Redemption, but there are people, liberal theologians who, who say that, that that well the, the, the cross this is, this is divine child abuse or cosmic child abuse. Brian McLaren is one such man. Just so a, a radical rejection of the biblical testimony of what the crucifixion was about and what the crucifixion means for sinners. Again, this was not child abuse. The, 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 even though the, the son did suffer at the hands of the father, yet he did this willingly, joyfully, fully aware of, of what it meant. Because there was the only way that he could redeem you and me. It was the only way that he could, could fully glorify who God is and to show all of God's attributes. Well then let's go let's go to the to Luke's testimony of what Jesus said in verse 46. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said Father into your hands I commit my spirit. First of all just the fact that that Jesus cried out with a loud voice is a powerful sign. Jesus shouted. But remember where he was. He was hanging on a cross with with spikes through his knee, his feet, and and his hands, with his arms stretched out. Every breath for him was was agony. Every breath would mean putting putting pressure on those mangled nerve endings. And crucifixion for most meant death by asphyxiation. And normally life would, would ab out over the course of days. But now Jesus Christ shouts out loudly in prayer. This is a testimony. This is no mere man. Jesus Christ is, as always, the conquering king, even here on the cross. He holds the power. Now consider that he shouted again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is consciously quoting, and fulfilling Psalm 31, 5. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. These words were were a part of King David's prayer as the righteous sufferer crying out for deliverance from his enemies. They, They were an expression of King David's faith as he trusted that he was in God's hands no matter what others were doing to him. But these words on King David's lips were not ultimately about King David. They were ultimately about Jesus. They, they pointed to Jesus typologically. They were a picture, a, a shadow that pointed to, to David's greater son. Not King David, but the King of Kings. And they were also prophetic. And Jesus here is showing the fulfillment of this prophecy as he intentionally, consciously says these words from the cross. But, but he is not just, just saying, them. oh, I need to check this list. Of fulfillment, no. He's saying that as his prayer, as his heartfelt prayer to his heavenly Father. Jesus is quoting the Psalm as an expression of his faith that God will receive him. It's also an expression of his faith that God will resurrect him. Now, again, there there are. It would take way too long, but there are many, many Psalms and other Old Testament passages that point to the resurrection. We're going to talk about some of those next Sunday, Lord willing. But if you're reading the, the five-day Bible plan, and then you would have read Psalm 16 earlier this week. Let me just read to us verse, for us verses 8 to 11. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know, this psalm and and the other psalms really should be a regular part of your devotions because the the psalms are one of the most, most powerful ways for you to give biblical voice to your prayers as you call out to the Lord in whatever you're facing in life. So, so consider, when you, when you look at a psalm or, or any passage of scripture, look, look at, at how the, the Holy Spirit-inspired human author meant the psalm. Consider what he meant in his, in his original circumstances. And then consider the fact of how, how it points to and finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then consider it the way that it applies back to you. And so you can adopt Psalm 16 as your own as you commit your soul into God's hands. Brothers and sisters, your life and your death and your resurrection are in God's hands. If you're reading the five-day plan, you, you also would have read Psalm 116 this past week. Verse 15 declares, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If you belong to Christ, you are his saint and your death is precious in his sight, just as it was for Lord Jesus Christ. But notice also the intimacy with which Jesus Christ addresses God. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We've seen this repeatedly also in in Luke's gospel, how how Jesus uh, addresses God as Father, how he teaches his disciples, including us, to address God in the same way. Father, hallowed be your name. And so when Jesus calls out to God as his father, he's saying even in the darkness, he knows that his father's present. He's been forsaken, but only temporarily and never utterly. His heavenly father is there. And Jesus knows that this is the cry of faith. And so Jesus Christ dies as the innocent sufferer, faithful to the end, committing his soul to his heavenly Father. But finally, quickly, let's consider how he died. And having said this, he breathed his last. Again, not much detail. John nineteen thirty adds that Jesus said, "It is finished," and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus had already said back in John 10, 18 that he had the power to lay down his life and he had the power to take it up again. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Now, as you think about your life, you do not have authority to lay your life down. And you certainly do not have the authority to take your life up again. Your life is not your own. You don't have the, the authority to end your life. And you don't have the authority, the ability to start your life after the end of your life. No one does. When, just one example. When, when a doctor commits euthanasia, and I, and I use, use the word commits on purpose because euthanasia, when a doctor commits euthanasia, this is he or she is guilty of committing the sin of murder. A doctor who commits euthanasia is committing the action but is not in control over death. He or she is not in control of of the departure of the, the spirit from the body. But when Jesus Christ gave up his life, he literally gave up his life. Again, not, not when, as we die when, when our time has come for we don't have the power to add or to subtract one moment from our, our span of life. It was, it was not that, that Jesus was compelled to die or that he could not help but die. But as, as J.C. Ryle says that when he died on the cross, it was not because he had not the power to prevent it. He suffered intentionally, deliberately, and of his own free will. If you are trusting Jesus Christ, then you can trust Jesus Christ with your life. You can entrust your life into God's hands. So like your Lord Jesus Christ, commit your life into God's hands and one day if the Lord tarries, you will face your greatest enemy, death, not a moment early or not a moment late, at the exact moment that God has decreed from eternity past. But you need not be afraid of death, because Christ has conquered death for you. The martyr Stephen did this in in Acts 7.59, when he was being stoned to death. He, like his Lord, called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. By God's grace, may, may that or something very close to that be our last words when we breathe our last. Commit your life into the Father's hands and commit the lives of your loved ones into your Father's hands. You cannot cause them or yourself to again to live one moment any longer than has been determined for them. Now. I understand the temptation to to worry for your loved ones, especially for your kids. But you do understand that by worrying, you feel like you're doing something, but you are not doing anything except distracting yourself from faith in God. So commit your loved ones into God's hands. But first, commit to telling them about Jesus Christ, for for it is only those who are in Christ who are truly safe in God's hands. Commit your life into the Father's hands and commit the lives of your loved ones into your Father's hands and trust him. Leave it in his hands. Even for those who have already departed, we definitely can't do anything there. We can still pray for our loved ones who are still alive, but we can't. There, there's no point in, in praying for our loved ones who have departed. They, they have already gone into their, their eternal reward. And so when it comes to those who are in Christ, we, we grieve. Yes, we, we grieve over, over those who have died, but we do not grieve like those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we also acknowledge that, that it's not up to us to determine. We don't know what, what happens in somebody's dying moments. We saw the thief on the cross with, with his last breath. He committed himself to Jesus Christ, and Jesus promised him, today you'll be with me in paradise. We don't know what has happened to those who have departed? It's it's not up for for us to to decide, but we do know that it's only those who are trusting in Jesus Christ who will go to be with Jesus Christ. We know that those who are absent from the body are at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And so we can rejoice that those who have departed in Christ are now present with Christ. Now as we think about about what was purchased for us in, in, our, in our salvation. Of course, we, we, we tend to focus on, on, on God's wrath being, being fulfilled upon Christ for our sins. But Jesus Christ didn't die just to save us from hell. He didn't just save us from hell. He didn't even just save us to heaven. He saved us to himself. He, he saved us to, to, to presence with him for all eternity. You know, would you be satisfied if you just got out of hell but weren't with Jesus Christ? Would you be satisfied to be even in heaven but without Jesus Christ? The, the treasure of heaven is not, it's not the pearly gates, it's not the streets of gold. The, the treasure of heaven is Jesus Christ. We've been saved by Christ to Christ for eternity. Now we're going to come back on Friday, again, Lord willing, and, and consider how, how the bystanders who were, were eyewitnesses of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, how, how they interpreted and how they responded to his death. But let us, like the Lord Jesus Christ, commit our lives and the lives of our loved ones into the Lord's hands. Like the hymn that paraphrases uh, 2 Timothy 1.12. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me, of weary days or golden days before I see his face. I know not when my Lord may come at new, at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. But I know who I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that on the cross you were charged with the guilt of all of your people for all time. That it was not just the the not just the Jews, not just the Romans, not just the the, the hard-hearted thief, not just the bystanders. but God the Father who condemned you as guilty. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you, the righteous one, would bear our guilt and our shame and our condemnation so that we could receive forgiveness, so that we could receive life, So that we could enter into the presence of God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to preach these truths to ourselves every day until our dying day. So that we might be confident, that we might be hopeful as we live before you, that one day we will live with you for all eternity. Amen.